Tonight's episode is brought to you by Severin Films. Severin's Black Friday sale is the black mass of magnificence. Featuring the worldwide UHD premieres of three films by Michelle Sobey, Cemetery Man, The Church, and The Sect, each in three or four discs set with remastered soundtracks and hours of extras. And there's the UHD premiere of Spider Labyrinth, which is one of me and Becca's favorite thing we've seen the last few years, on three discs with over four hours of special features. Uh, The Dead One, I've never heard of this one, the first full-color zombie movie in exploitation history, the ultimate presentation of Sam Sherman's Raiders of the Living Dead, the North American home video premiere of Giuliani Montaldo's Closed Circuit, the worldwide HD premiere of Buddy Giovanazzo's The Unscarred, and the gritty exploitation prison drama Stir. Plus, all new Severn merch and deep discounts on all Severn catalog titles. It all begins at midnight Friday, November 25th, only at SeverinFilms.com. Welcome to Colors of the Dark. I am your co-host Rebecca McKendry. With me tonight is Elric Kane. How you doing? I've discovered true evil in the world. Is it like food-based or music or a color I haven't seen yet? Much simpler than that. It's called Daylight Savings. Oh, fuck that shit. Oh my god. It is the devil because I got home. I left. I got home like earlier than I normally do, like four-ish. I was heading home, and by the time of six, I was so tired. I was like, I must be done for the night. And then realizing podcast comes at seven, and I was like, What is? It's so different. It really saps your. Like I'm fine during the day. It feels great, and then it just hits when that darkness rolls in. Ah, it's awful. So the first couple of nights after daylight savings time, I had these moments where it was literally like five thirty. But I'm like, Well, I guess I should get the kids ready for bed. Or, oh my gosh, I need to think about everything I need to get ready for the next day. And then suddenly I was like, it's like 4.30. It's such a weird, I hate fucking daylight savings. It's the worst. I I want a daylight saving slasher. Where is the daylight saving slasher? The guy who kills during the hour break that will not really exist because we saved the hour. So those murders don't exist. There was a horror film that I covered a couple of years ago where it was that they were traveling somewhere, but they had forgot it was daylight savings time. So they discovered that they were already like an hour late. And I can't remember what it was. It was something I covered on deep cuts where that was a plot point. Okay. uh, Listeners take to, you know, the internet to Twitter. I mean, X or whatever the fuck it is now. um, And tell me what this, was because there was definitely some horror film that we covered where the plot point was that they were supposed to be at this point at a specific time but oops it's daylight savings time so then they showed up like an hour earlier an hour later they were having to take back roads because they realized it was daylight savings time it was i know um new year's evil has the plot point of the changing time zones and at some point it plays an actual narrative because the person's tra- the killer's traveling to the different time zones, I think, and to get to the person they want to kill at the end. Uh, and I think it throws it off because of, but that's not daylight saving. I think that's daylight not. saving slasher. That should be the title, the daylight saving slasher. I want to be to bake this. Uh, and, I, and you can do with what you will. I want a little story by credit. Uh, I voted because we voted on this in California. I guess it was like two years ago. And I voted against daylight savings time. I was like, fuck that shit. We don't yeah. need it. And um, somehow we still have it. So I guess I thought I we didn't. I thought I thought it was cut, or maybe one of them was cut. Like at one point we didn't do it because I thought this year. Yeah, I thought this year was going to be free. And then and it is good. The first 
time it hits you get that extra hour of sleep or whatever and then after that it's just the worst anyway uh it does put a bit of a it does make it feel like the end of the year is coming and it feels like you're running out of time and it feels a little suffocating that way but otherwise I'm and that's our show, ladies and yeah, gentlemen. Otherwise, Thank I'm great. So much for tuning in yeah. to Rebecca and Elric bitch about daylight savings time. It's been a blast. We so. discovered a new slasher <laughs> idea that hasn't been done. No, I mean, and I bet you it has. Somebody will send me. Somebody, there's probably a, a movie done. that already exists, and we will cover it on Deep Cuts, y'all. Send it to us. We will cover it on. Deep People Cuts. made a movie called ATM for Christ's sake. So of course they're going to have made daylight savings. <laughs> I mean, if you can make a slasher film around a, a money dispensing machine, anything can happen. Um, <laughs> anyway, which we will get to in the second part of our show. We will be talking to Tyler McIntyre from It's a Wonderful Knife, a new slasher, another cool spin on a meta slasher, which has mm-hmm. always been a good year for that. There's been a few. Yeah, um, Michael we'll Kennedy, the writer, was also supposed to be joining us, but we hope you feel better soon, Michael. We'll yes. talk soon. Um, but yeah, before we get there, uh, we have been watching some exciting stuff. So I think we should kick off with something I know that we both watched at least the first episode of hmm. you. I'm like four episodes, five episodes in. And that's the new Fall of House of Usher. Um, yeah, you're, I'm going to. I'm going to try to, I've only done one episode, that was a couple of weeks back, so I'll let you just go at it, but I am going to try before we do our top 10, because I do think like big shows like that, I don't really think of as TV because they're doing a whole new thing. You know, oh, like, so we can cement. include I think so. series. Okay. I, also, okay. I also think in a year like this, we might need to. I think so too. I've I've watched 60 plus uh, new horror films this year and I hardly have a top five at the moment. And that's not oh, normal. Oh, that's judgy. Okay, no. Uh, I, oh, I'm I, laying it down. I so, think this is the weakest horror year we've had in about five years. So I thought it was just me. And I'm kind yeah. of relieved to hear you say that because I was starting to look at like my letterback lists and everything. Yeah. And I was going, God, I have not seen... Whereas with a lot of years, I find um, last year in particular where I overflowing had like 20 overflowing. films that yeah. I was like, I could put any of these on the list and feel good about it this year. I'm struggling a bit. It's oh, no, true. I think last year I had like 14 that were vying for the top 10 and the top eight or so, you know, and every year is different. I would say mm-hmm. this year, what I've noticed is one of the best years for movies in the last four years in terms of like mainstream Hollywood Big studio is like, films. Yeah, yeah. They're killing it. And the Oscars right. will have like 10 great movies nominated, which never happens. But in horror, it's kind of in the opposite. There's a few I love. And there's still a couple, couple things to, to before the end of the year's out. We still haven't seen, we're hoping to see thanks giving next week. And I'm hearing really good things about that. And that's always exciting. So uh, it's the year ain't over yet, but I'm just saying compared to recent years, it's this one's going to be a little harder uh, yeah. for the 10. So I want to watch that for that for sure. So you tell, yeah, tell me without big spoilers. Uh, okay. How are you feeling? So Fall of House of Usher, I am on episode four, five. I can't even remember. It's amazing. You at least need to get through two because the ending of two, I just jaw dropped. It was awesome. Um, But you need to keep going in general. The whole setup of this, is that it's Edgar Allan Poe. It's specifically The Fall of House of Usher, which is about this incredibly um, rich family whose kind of entire empire is falling apart. In the actual story, it's a brother and sister, all that are left, and they're watching kind of their entire world crumble around them. And uh, Flanagan picks up with that, that's the original Poe story, and takes it and turns it into a modern day um, family empire And they are a drug empire. They made all of their money off of opioids, Um, a particular drug that they swore up and down was not addictive in any way. They put it up as a um, alternate to anything addictive and it's highly addictive. And right now, as the, the show opens, they are being investigated by the FBI 
they've got all these bajillion lawsuits against them. And they're being told that someone within their family of like eight people, they're really close knit family is a mole who is leaking information about the family's wheelings and dealings to the FBI. And so while um, the main guy is kind of trying to go through and see who could be the leak, who could be the one leaking everything, um, people start dying. And so that's the general setup. Even within that, Flanagan is very smart as he infuses every post story. Like even the deep cuts, like Hop Frog was in there somewhere and um, Cask of Amontillado and Black Cat. Like they all are kind of working their way in in various ways. Characters from all the different post post stories comprise um, the the family itself. Um, actually, one of my friends, Katie Parker, who was in my very first film, All the Creatures Were Stirring, plays Annabelle Lee. Oh, cool. So it's like all of the different Poe characters are infused in there in some capacity. And it's just really good. It takes place over multiple time periods where you're following the patriarch of the family as he was starting out, as he first kind of developed the drug um, and was working with the scientist, as he met his wife, Annabelle Lee. And then it kind of follows through the multiple time periods as he was kind of growing his empire through modern day. And he is telling the story to a detective about how his children have recently started dying. So much of it is told through his story POV flashing back just a couple of weeks and then flashing back, you know, an entire lifetime as he's telling his story as a young man. So it's kind of all over the place time-wise, but it's easy to follow and it's really good. Yeah, I saw the first episode, so I got the basic how they were going to tell the story in terms of the flashbacks and the interview with the cop. Uh, And Bruce Greenwood's a great casting choice to be the head Mm -hmm. of the family like that because it felt a bit like Succession and a little bit like, did you see that documentary Beauty and the Sadness last year about I the didn't. Nan Golden, the artist who tries to take down the opioid industry because the opioid industry donate to mo- are the biggest donor of a lot of art galleries. And so she's trying to get their name taken out of that equation. Wow. And stuff. It's, it's a pretty interesting uh, <laughs> battle. It was an Oscar, might have won the Oscar last year for a documentary. It was definitely nominated. Uh, really good film, though. Wow. Um, OK, no, I didn't see that one. Okay, but yeah, well, I, yeah. So this is on Netflix. Really good right now. I watched another Netflix show, but I'll hold on that. What'd you see? Yeah, I did a couple shows. I'll leave the shows till the end. Let's leave them until the end part. Um, just so we can put them in their rightful place behind cinema, which is where they belong, um, in my opinion, says this film snob. Um, well, you know what? Then I'm going to go ahead and put this one here because it's not a TV show. Oh, okay. This is a limited series as well. Um, I watched Bodies. Did you watch this one yet? No, I wanted to. It looked cool. Yeah, so this is really cool. I'll call this loosely horror. It's horror science fiction blended Mm -hmm. together. It's definitely got horrific notes. It's based off a DC Vertigo graphic novel um, by Cy Spencer that I have had sitting like ready to go for a while that I've been wanting to read. I actually had a copy of it on my desktop, um, digital copy, and I'd never gotten around to it. And this just suddenly made me say like, okay, I need to go read that. Um, So it is, the concept is it's four different time periods. It is 1890, 1941, 2022, and then 2053, um, 2023, and then 2053. So we've got four different time periods. And we open with this street in London called Long Harvest Lane. And we see it in all of these different time periods and how it looks and how it's being treated. And it's always kind of this back alley like area that isn't really a street. It's more like an alley. And in each one of these time periods at the exact same time, at the exact same day, 
they find the exact same dead body. It's naked. It's got tally marks on its arm where it's got like three slashes and one going across. So like four tally marks on its arm. It's missing an eye. And in all of them, it's dead for the most part. Um, So it's four different detectives finding this body and then leading an investigation about how it got there. And so each one of the different detectives discovers different inconsistencies with the bodies. Like in one of the time periods, somebody gets a photo of a man who's standing near the body right before the cops find it. In one of the other ones, they find particular markings on the body. And one of them, the detective himself knows that there are other people kind of tied to the crime, that there's kind of a a cultiness around it. As you move into the second episode, that's what you kind of start to get is that there is this kind of larger organization because you start meeting these people surrounding the bodies or having something to do with the bodies. And they all have this one phrase, know you are loved. And you start hearing that phrase over and over in all four different time periods. Gradually throughout the series, I won't go too far because I don't want to blow it for anybody, but you start to realize like what's going on and what that body is and why they're finding it and how it's part of this larger thing that's happening. This is really cool. Um, How many episodes is this overall? Eight. And did you watch it all yet or no? I watched all of it in about oh. three nights. Oh wow! Okay, and cool. um, and it was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, like it was tight. It was very bingeable. Um, where I I didn't want to break it up. Like I finished one and I wanted to keep going, and then I was pissed. I had to go to bed, and I just wanted to keep watching it. So it was a very. It was a heavy show. It was a complicated show. This is not one that I would watch while you know you're doing your taxes in the background or anything like that because there was a lot to keep up with. Um, between the different four time periods and you're watching four different investigations taking place simultaneously and then figuring out how they're linked together. Um, So it was very bingeable, but it was definitely kind of a sit and stare at the television. But it was captivating enough that was all I wanted to do. I want you to create a letterbox list called Films to Do Your Taxes To. And I want to see what you view as the film perfect to be on in the Um, background. Hooked. It's not for here. It's for it's for Letterbox. No, okay, okay. Films to list. do. Films, films to, to do, do your taxes to. Music for a sushi restaurant. You know, this is yeah. films to do your taxes I like it. to. Okay, so you there can you go. That. But yeah, it looked interesting. It has that really good actor, that short guy who's in a ton of stuff. I think he played Al Capone in the uh, Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, can't remember his name. Um, is really the, really tight. Is the story in the show. past Whitechapel or not? No, not a, it it's not a Jack feels, the Ripper thing. Okay. No, it it. Feels like Jack the Ripper's world, but it doesn't go Jack yeah, okay. the Ripper. Because that's like my my number one like sweet spot. Anything that touches like kind of white chapel vibe, I'm always into it. But I was always um, fascinated by the Jack. Like, it, and it's weird because usually I I run. I am not always a true crime person, but I have moments where I really dig to crime. I actually watched like three different true crime documentaries this week. Um, And it's weird. I'll take a break from horror. And instead of going to like buddy cop movies or romantic comedies, I go to true crime is my break from horror. So I watched like a bunch this week. But Jack the Ripper is one that has always absolutely fascinated me. When I was a kid, they did one of those, like, it's not live, but they're like, we're going to figure out who did it live on air. And they go through all the scenarios and just like you become upset. I know I was obsessed for years at believing 100% that it was the Queen's doctor because they're, they're just the evidence and the way that that person would be able to cover their tracks and stuff made total sense to me. But I can't recall why. Anyway, uh, <laughs> there's some good movies. I, you know, I watched for the first time last year, I watched um, Sister 
Jack the Ripper. What is it? The Sister Ripper, whatever the one it is. That's a I hammer one. That one. I think it's Sister Hyde, but it's set. Oh, it's okay. set around the same time. So Jack the Ripper is kind of in the background of the story. It's mm-hmm. a really good. It's one of those movies I never would have watched without the Pope to watch it, what? and it was really well done. What is the one with Julia Roberts? Wasn't she in a Jack the, the Ripper? Uh, are you thinking of Portrait of a? No, now I might be mixing two movies. Yeah, Hold there's on. the. I'm googling this. Oh it's no, always... you're right. No, Julia no, Roberts. Mary Riley. She... Yeah, Mary Riley. When she has no yeah. eyebrows in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> They're I remember just, that being a bit depressing. They're just very them. tiny. Um, well, they, and I feel like on that's VHS, more they a, didn't exist. They were just gone. No, no, idea. I feel like that's more. Uh, I can't remember if it's Jack the Ripper or if it's, uh, it's like a, a Hyde, like a Dr. Hyde type thing. But yeah. I remember it being that same time period. Yeah. Yeah, there's a good Michael Caine one from that period that was really entertaining. There's lots of good ones. But yeah, one day we'll do uh, all Googling it. It's Mary. Uh, Mary Riley is Dr. Jekyll. She's uh, a maid in his household. And But for some reason, I associated it more with Jack the Ripper. Yeah, the time period's usually yeah. overlapping when people film these. Um, anyway, one day we'll do an all Ripper episode. That'll be fun. Uh, Jack's back will definitely be in there. James. Oh, Spade, yeah. That's a good uh, one. Damn right. Um, okay. I watched a couple of the ones. I'll do them one at a time, but I did a couple of the ones that you had already talked about, but like I wanna I wanna see most of the stuff before the end of the year. So first it lives inside, uh directed by Bishal Duta. Uh I wanted to catch up on this one because this one I was really holding out hope that I would really love it because it did look cool. What really works in this film quite well is um the kind of identity cultural assimilation stuff Mm -hmm. like it's it could be cheesy but i think the way they portray this young uh indian american girl who is wanting to be more like her like american friends than her mom who she sees as almost she kind of just is starting to reject her culture and and the kind of um competitive streak that kind of goes between a family i thought was actually really well orchestrated and i thought some of the build-up to the scares was good i think has a bit of it follows a bit of elm street kind of vibes but Mm -hmm. weirdly enough and i've never said this i think in my life this is the first movie that when it shows the creature and they do a person in a suit creature that i freaking hated like like it it undid the movie like i thought every time i saw the creature is like that's a dumb why does it look like like i would i think this movie would have probably worked a lot better not showing it or finding some other you know, m- more mysterious way to show it because as soon as you see this, it, it it's just too powerful. Like you'll have anything where the powers of something are like when you're near it, you can it can throw you around and and but but then suddenly you're somewhere else and some some invisible thing sneaking up and throwing you around. It's like well, if it can do it any time, why isn't it doing it all the time? You know, it's it just opens up too many questions as you're watching it and ultimately doesn't fully come together. There's certain sequences that aren't um, that maybe where the story just doesn't feel like it's propelling. But honestly, it was really my biggest issue was once it started to reveal the thing, I, it just, for me, it didn't come together. And I love person in a suit horror and uh, always want more of it. But um, I do think it's worth watching. And I think it's got some uh, some cool parts, but it wasn't the movie I was like hoping. Like I was, yeah. I was hoping for a late innings home run here as we get to the end of the year. Um, but but still worth watching for people. And now it's you know more readily available to check out. So it that was my exact review. I was super excited about it. I thought yeah. that the cultural stuff was so clever um, within the movie. But yeah, the monster monster just it, it lost me when it finally came 
to be do, on screen. Do you, do you remember that Indian, the act of <laughs> a film from India that I loved from a few years ago that I stumbled upon on Netflix that time? And Tumbad? Tumbad. No. Like if Tumbad. You, it was Tumbad. Tumbad. Yeah. If you look at Tumbad, it's like, man, like some of the things that they kind of reveals as that movie goes on is incredible. And they did some demon creature work that was really original feeling. And, you know, I know this stuff's always hard mm -hmm. to, because you have to make people buy it basically. But, um, but this one does show promise for yeah. sure in terms th this is the kind of film where if this person director was given another property a, a beloved conjuring, I would watch it in yeah a heartbeat. They, they would probably do a very good job with it it's not yeah. not a directing issue I don't think um, but that's it lives inside I'll come back to another one you talked about yeah so I'm gonna take us to the conference so this is on Netflix I didn't even write down what year this came out it's not I think this is probably like 2022 mm -hmm. it's a Swedish film that just now came to Netflix a couple of weeks ago um directed by a guy named Patrick Eklund but he is Swedish so I'm not familiar with most of his other work um but this I it had gotten kind of mid-range reviews but it had done um on like IMDb and Amazon Amazon, but when I looked on Letterboxd, there were all of these horror fans going like, holy shit, this is fun. These kills are wild. So, okay, I'm sold. So in, I love this movie. I thought it was really fun. The setup, it's an, it's an ensemble piece of about 10 people who all work for this kind of small corporate company. And they're all part of this group that is building a new mini mall. And they've um, cleared the ground. They're about to break ground on it. They're they're getting ready to start construction. It's this massive project that they have all been on for years. They all are picking at each other. They all know each other way too well because they've been working on this for so long. And the weekend before they are supposed to break ground on this brand new <laughs> mall that they've all been working on um it's not even like a small mini mall like they keep talking like ikea bought one of the spots like ikea's coming y'all so it's like this big deal for their town um they decide to do a team building weekend where their boss makes them all go away to this very isolated rural retreat to do this team building thing where they're all doing trust falls and talking about, you know, little games where they have to figure out how to survive on a desert island and doing ropes courses and rappel lines and things like that and support your coworkers. And they get there and it's shitty and none of them really seem to enjoy it. Some of them get really into it. Some of them get really competitive and then um, there's a couple of dude bro that are just excited because there's a hot tub and they get to be there with all their female co-workers um but our protagonist is a female who has just come back from sick leave and has been kind of removed a little bit from the project in the latter days of it um but has just come back and she is basically completely unamused by everything that's happening so she's going through the motions of this entire weekend but then people start dying and the mask in this, which I'm going to mention later in our interview with Tyler McIntyre, you're just, you know, kind of foreseeing Traversing the space and time. <laughs> yeah, completely. Um, is the the symbol of the mini mall. They've got like, it's this weird little like doll headed boy and that they have like a mascot for it. And so that mascot head is used by the killer when he starts killing. The kills in this are, I'll say when they start killing. The kills in this, absolutely brutal that was by far the best part like the characters were cool um the setup was cool the way that it was kind of getting into it the background story of who is actually killing them in the mall itself and why all really cool but where this film really stuck the landing was on the kills not even just the kills i'm going to say the kill transitions and that's something that i don't get to talk about much 
kill transitions. How do you kill someone brutally and then transition into the next scene? And this does it repeatedly over and over. Like um, the movie, oh gosh, what is the name of it? The Mia Wachowski, the trans, the scene transitions are epic. In oh, Stoker, it. it's the Stoker. It's perfection. Yeah, I teach I use it all the it, time. Yeah. I use it, yeah, I do too. I use it in my class at USC to teach how to do scene transitions. Um, this is like Stoker level of scene transitions from the kills. It is just, and does it kill after kill after kill. And the kills themselves are really brutal and fun. So this, it wasn't, you know, a perfect film, but I had a lot of fun with it. And trust me, compared to a lot of the stuff on Netflix, this is kind of cream. So enjoy the conference. You talking about the plot of that one was reminding me of a film. And I was like, I got to re- remind people. Severance. About that. Yeah, Severance by Chris mm-hmm. Smith is yeah. a super fun version. Same thing, team building yeah, exercise. Uh, I always think of Flight of the Concords because they have that line, team building exercise 1997, <laughs> which I think is a great line. In Severance, uh, my favorite but... scene in Severance, and I've still, I've referenced it in so many, like when I've been pitching stuff and I even um, have a script now that I just kind of was like, and remember that scene from Severance? He takes acid and then he walks outside and he's kind of having a conversation and then the camera pans over slightly and he's like talking to himself and he sees another version of himself. It's just so cool and trippy how it does mm. that. I remember that more than any other scene of that movie. But that was a fun one about Smith's a team. That's good. Yeah, he's, been a, yeah mm-hmm. he's done a lot of different movies. All those movies yeah. tend to be quite different, like Triangle. Um, okay, the other one I saw that you have also seen was Appendage I watched this week. Yeah. Uh, directed by Anna Zlokovic. And your uh, your review was dead on. Uh, the, I was probably more mixed on it, but your review was definitely in there. It's It definitely is like a slightly... Uh, more elevated version of a headland lauder and there's moments where i was like yeah 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 and then then there'd be like a full like weird doll type creature like headland lauder i was like oh that's actually pretty cool it was sometimes trapped between those in tone yeah. like i think sometimes <laughs> the tone got a little confused i it's one of those movies that i liked it i actually thought it was, it was a fun watch i'm glad i watched it it did feel the short film of it a lot like sometimes you feel oh this was a great short and then somebody makes a feature out of it i could feel it at times you know some of the body snatcher elements are fun and it leads to a bigger story which i won't run ruin for people here uh again it was about a fashion designer uh who uh, has a lot of anxiety that anxiety starts to manifest itself as this like sack on her uh it's like a boil yeah. yeah which very quickly is burst it, it's not i in my brain it was going to be even hearing you talk about it, in my brain, for some reason, I thought this was a story about something that stayed attached the whole movie. So very quickly, it becomes its own thing that grows in her house and uh, fuels her anxiety and uh, and her feelings about herself and her friends and stuff and kind of drives a wedge between them. It's a, it's a very, I think it's a clever and smart idea. I think sometimes it's hard to mix the goopy stuff with stuff that's like trying for, you know, the bigger ideas. It's sometimes always, always glad to see someone take a swing at it. I think... Um, my biggest is so funny because I don't I think I might be in the minority here, though, is a lot of movies now they try to show you what's going to happen or give you a real taste of what, what movie you're going to watch because it's streaming in the first like minute. And that my biggest issue was was the opening scene. I really was kind of bummed how it rushed this movie, which is she's just sitting at dinner with her parents in the opening scene and her stomach hurts and the thing is starting to grow in the first scene. And I I find something's being lost in movies, Mm -hmm. which is the ability to give us a few scenes with the character to give a shit, to kind of get a sense of what their life is like before the horror 
intrudes and for me personally that's what i like about horror that's why i love movies like rosemary baby or whatever it's going to be and for me that one scene was enough to go ah now i already am it's too it's so fast to get into the thing that for me whatever reason it, it cooled me a little bit in terms of the tone but again i know i'm you know everyone's gonna approach that differently that's a streaming directive now yeah. so i've been on projects before where they have said the streamers want a taste of the horror and it can't just be a hint of it. It can't just be, you know, we see a sack fall to the floor like we see an audition. It has to be something bigger um, where we get a pretty significant taste of what the horror is like in the first five minutes. You have to have that as part of it because otherwise people will say there's no horror here and turn it off. Yeah, and that's why and, I think movies are yeah. in danger of dying. And I'm, I mean it quite oh, sincerely. No, I mean it sincerely. No, I completely sincerely. The art of something being dictated by corporate entities is what kills it won't kill all that's cinema studios no. do and have been doing yeah. for a hundred years not not in the same way and roger corman can do it because it was like an independent studio. you can hey, have this many but when it's a directive to shape how the stories are told i just think you find that's actually not the effective way of telling a story and it's and i think streamers are largely responsible for a diminishing uh, returns there's some cool stuff that gets put on streamers that's very exciting when movies end up on streamers that's one thing but when you, they're generating content i think it's it has at least for me my taste is not everyone's taste but i definitely feel that way i think it's it, you feel the corporate decisions when people are doing that and you can't it's not the same kind of story i know? agree with you but i think you're being apocalyptic well, so I don't think a lot it's of the death of cinema. Oh my gosh! I mean, we'll have to have a new name. Streamer, streamer, ma, streamer, ma. I don't know what it'll Stream- be, but streamer, ma. Streamopalypse. Uh, hopefully, it won't be the death. But I do think there is moments where uh, things, you know, hey, I thought Marvel at one point was was looking like that, and looks like that's the tides have turned on that. It, I think people get burned out on one direction, and then it kind of has to go away for a while. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you there. But that said, no, I um where I found this most interesting was that it was trying to do elevated hen and ladder or classy, elegant hen and ladder. Um, but that was also where, you know, sometimes it it a little bit missed the mark that it was kind of aiming for this what hen and lauder is with the goopiness, but presenting it in a very kind of very polished, very elegant position yeah the um, performances that- were good the, the lead was good she was she holds holds it together so you believe what she's going through yeah. which is not easy given the kind of movie it is i think yeah. Yeah. um but i thought it was worth checking out on hulu i yeah. I, I definitely you know tone, tone when you're trying to balance that many tones is always a little tricky so uh, so I'm going to take us into um, this one was recommended to me by one of our listeners on Twitter. And I was honestly a little shocked. I enjoyed it as much as I did. I say that with love because um, this did not sound like one I would like, but um, well done, whoever recommended this to me. And that is hashtag Chad gets the axe. This, this is it's a smaller film directed by Travis Bible, who apparently had a short film of the same name and then decided to make it into a feature, much like Appendage. Um, and it is about four social media influencers that decide to live stream a trip to the Devil's Manor, which is this former house that was owned by a satanic cult in the middle of nowhere. And they're out there in the middle of nowhere and they decide to live stream the entire thing. Um, why? Uh, so I had loved Deadstream. And there has been kind of a spate of uh, influencer horrors this year, um, which is, you know, it's to be expected. It's kind of the way of the world. And last, I guess it was two years ago, there was actually, I remember seeing studio directives and I remember seeing it pop up on um, some of the buyers lists, like, you know, looking for influencer horrors. So cool. 
So we've had a couple this year. Um, I still think Deadstream is by far the best because I loved the characters and I thought it nailed the horror element so well, balancing it between like an Evil Dead style and stuff that was actually scary. But this had some charm to it that I really was not expecting. So it functions like a found footage, much like Deadstream, because it is being streamed the entire time. So the setup of this one is it is this influencer named Chad. And you get the idea that Chad is very over the top. He's had some controversies in the background. He's done some stuff he probably shouldn't have done. Um, But he has a whole brand, including merch and catchphrases about things being spicy. And um, yeah, he's got like a whole shtick that he does and, you know, goes to all of these different places. And so in order to go to the Devil's Manor, he calls this other influencer YouTube guy who is also equally crazy and does all these crazy stunts and is known for doing stunts. And then this super cute couple, um, Spencer and Jennifer, who go by the name Spenifer, and they're, that's what they're known for is just these stories about how in love they are and what their lives are like. And so they tag along, Spenifer tags along to just be part of this. And, uh, but they're mostly known for their relationship and, you know, all of the fun stuff that they're doing. At first, I was kind of like, these characters are frustrating, but then I realized that it's making fun of these characters to a degree. Like it's simultaneously acknowledging why people would watch this while simultaneously making fun of them. And there was something charming to the way that it was presented. The movie itself is more funny than scary for the most part, but it did still have some decent scares in it. Clearly low budget, but they were working well with what they had. And it was still a really charming movie on the budget that they were working with. Again, I was shocked I liked this as much as I did. Like this is right behind Deadstream for me now. This is hashtag Chad gets the axe. And this one, I think I paid $2.99 to watch it on Amazon. So not that much. Okay, speaking of micro budget or super low budget and surprisingly charming, we're we're going uh, in a perfect direction here. So uh, Steven Scarlatta watched some movie a few days ago and he posted an image, uh, like one of the opening scenes of it. And I just happened to see it like passing through and I'd never heard the title so goofy. I was like, what is that? And for some reason, I pushed play this weekend on Tubi and I really, really like this movie. It's like one of those surprises. It is called Chompy and the Girls. Holy shit, Monty, our friend Monty, um, Yazi just texted me yesterday and said, there's this crazy new, like absurdist, surreal film on Tubi that you have to see because you will love it. And I just added it to my watch list today. He wrote me after that telling me oh my god i just told becca to watch this movie because he left to see my letterbox and i only saw it because i would never have necessarily found it myself but it was just the and it wasn't because scarlotta i was trusting because scarlotta usually posts about a lot of uh shark movies that i'll never see so it was actually the clip was so interesting that i was like oh i want to know what this movie is uh so this is called chompy and the girls directed by someone called sky braband and I'm not going to say very much because it goes in very surprising directions. I will tell you, it opens with this girl, young, kind of, you know, uh, older than the teen, like early 20s. And she comes home, looks really depressed. She uh, puts up a rope to hang herself on her ceiling fan and quickly realizes her toes can still touch the ground and she's not doing a very good job. And then the ceiling fan actually breaks and she's just like a little depressed that she couldn't even kill herself. And so I was like, okay, I don't know how this is going to go. But what it's about is she basically uh, is in need of money and she's, you know, she does a lot of drugs and things like that. And she's trying to get her shit together and she reaches out a text message to this middle-aged guy who lives with a uh, his wife and no kids. And he gets a text that just says, I'm your daughter. My, my mom never told you about me can we meet 
and he is like and he looks very shocked that he's getting these texts and he's like oh shit and he has to like lie it's kind of comedic uh he has to lie to his uh wife about why he's going back out and then he goes to meet her i'm only going to take you up to like how this movie gets going and the scene i watched that made me want to watch this uh he goes to meet her he meets this girl they're on a park bench he thinks it's some sort of shakedown it starts to become clear it's not and you know she's kind of funny and weird and has just a, a lot of personality and he's kind of nerdy computer guy and suddenly they see this little girl in the park walking close to them and staring at them and they kind of look over at her for a second and then this weird guy starts walking towards her very much like it follows it has a vibe in this moment like it follows he gets closer and closer to the little girl and then his mouth becomes the side like a giant mouth like as big as his body and he in one gulp swallows the girl and these and the and the two people are just watching like it's a normal thing like what the fuck just happened and then it turns to them and starts walking towards them and they're like oh my god and they have to get out of there so that's how this movie opens and that's chompy and the girls it goes to really super places i wasn't expecting to go at times it shows its budget and other times it seems like it's swinging above its budget and i mean i mean low like it looks like it was made for almost nothing but it has I'm not kidding. The girl in this movie, Christy St. John is her name. I'd look her up afterwards. One of my favorite performances I've seen the last couple of years. I, I really like this character. I really like what she was doing with it. She's a mixture kind of funny and depressed. And I would, you know, she just is somebody instantly you put on like a short list of casting thinking uh, kind of like I thought about Terrified uh, 2, uh, Terrifier 2, you know, with the lead girl in that where they just kind of pop. Um, she's really good. The dad's really good, Steve Marvel. And it just goes to really funny, surprising places that I don't want to ruin because, you know, movie's so small that it can only do so much. So this won't be for everyone. It's definitely comedic and heartfelt. So it has charm. Horror is not it's like it's not a pulsating, crazy horror. It's more intriguing. Uh, so I looked it up today because I was like, who made this? I'm very curious because it's oh, it came out. It says 2020 or 2021, but I think it's only really just getting into the public view now by being mm-hmm. on Tubi. Um, or you can watch it on Amazon for like a dollar or something. But um, it was made by 27 Chapman film students, uh, ex-Chapman students. So mo- basically the director was like alumni from 2019. The producer was alumni from 2018. A bunch of them are students still now, but all the heads. So it's basically a film school, a bunch of people getting together, which is kind of cool because it's something me and you are always telling our students to do. Like yeah. the, the reason to go to film school is to meet these people. And if you work together, if you don't do that, you're kind of wasting your time going to film school. Um, and uh, so I thought that was very interesting. So uh, I really dug this. I, I think definitely I agree with my I think you would find it charming and and dig the kind of big ideas on the low budget. And all the characters are fun. Like everyone who pops up in this film somehow has a fun little role to play. Um, and not like everything else I've seen this year. I wouldn't probably put it in my list of end of the year just because of its it date does seem like it was a couple of years. But it's the kind of thing that might slide into a top 10 because it's just totally different. And um, yeah, I'll be curious. Other people might not feel quite the same, but I think you will. So that's Chompy and the Girls. Wow. Okay. This is from 2021. Um, now on Tubi. And so I'm super excited on this one. Yeah. Okay. Okay. My last, I've got a book and a graphic novel. So what else do you have in the film or TV space? I have some TV stuff and, and I did want to plug, uh, cause the killer came out, uh, David Fincher's new film, the killer, mm-hmm. which is not horror, but it's, you know, Fincher, it's really good, really funny, really dark. But it made me go down a rabbit hole of wanting to rewatch some of his. And the one I kind of, I didn't write it off when it came out, but 
his girl with the dragon tattoo, I'd seen all the other trilogy right before he made this. And so I was a little less excited when I saw his one, if you know what I mean, because I just watched three other really cool movies with it, watched it again yesterday. And I was on the fucking edge of my seat, the entire movie of a movie I saw 10 years ago. It is so well-crafted. And the last like 30 minutes is like a complete horror film. I mean, it's like, some of the tension you get in the final scene where they're cracking this missing girl case. So just a reminder for people, if they haven't watched that one or they haven't watched it in a long time, really holds up as a, uh, you know, tense. I tension. saw every single one of those in the theater. Cause I love them so much. Cause yeah, I love them too. I love the books. Um, I love that the books. Yeah, are good too. I, yeah. I had read every single one of the books and then I saw all the movies in the theater and I cannot remember that one for the life of me. And it's a good thing. That's kind of how I was like, cause even as I was watching, I was like, Oh, I've seen it a hundred percent, but the plot felt new and felt it's a really, really, I, I think watch it again. It is, it, it is a terrific movie. And it's one I always kind of, didn't value as much of his because maybe because I just seen that's I always think it's a bummer where America remakes something like the year after I'm always mm-hmm. like give give me a couple years like between our remakes sometimes otherwise you're just too familiar and and, and the a lot casting of, times, of the other was great I'll blend like with um yes. let the right one in and then let me in yeah. like They're I back to blend back. scenes I can't yeah. separate them mentally and even like funny games is another one where they are yeah. we are what we are where they were pretty much back to back yeah I have problems remembering which scenes were from which version because i watched them so close together yeah no it's it's it i prefer remakes when somebody does a big different change up you know yeah. that's why i like the evil dead one because they took out ash and to me that's a great curveball to have yeah you know? definitely so, uh, but i have a couple tv things but we can do it after. okay no go ahead jump in with your tv uh okay i don't know if this is hard yet uh it's called the curse it's the craziest thing i've seen this year it's just episode one it's nathan what Field- network Fielder, is this showtime and you can watch it through maybe the Amazon. It's episode one. Uh, I sec- love you just said the Amazon. The Amazon. You can it's watch one- that on the Amazon. It's one of the Safdie brothers. Benny, the actor, is one of the creators. But Nathan Fielder, who's the guy who's been having this huge, you know, kind of, uh, you know, he's one of the most popular uh, TV creators of the last couple of years, which and I've never seen anything he's ever hmm. done. He's the one who did Nathan for you and the rehearsal. The rehearsal was the show everyone went wild for last year, and I never watched it. Fun thing, of- if you look up the curse on Amazon, it gives you the curse pre-workout powder for blood flow, boost strength, energy, and improved circulation with creatine. Well, which um, is also the sponsor of today's episode. Thank which you. Is helpful. The curse. It's the curse. Um, uh, you got to scroll down. It's actually on the second page when you finally get to the show. Now we could do a whole Paramount podcast that, Plus. that tells people how far they have to scroll down Google search engines. I think this could be a hell of a podcast. Exciting uh, what? Yeah, it might be. You might be right. It, it, you can watch it on Amazon. So it's, you know, whatever. It's only one episode. It's online. That's how you'll find it. Um, it's so Nathan Fielder. I'd never really seen his comedy yet and i people have been telling me to watch the rehearsal um and it's very straight and basically emma stone who's gonna have the year of her life from what i hear because of her uh yargos lathamus film coming out soon called poor things the kind of mm-hmm. frankenstein sex movie uh between that and this i'd heard this is her banger kind of end of the year and this movie does this show did not fail to deliver this sh- the first 10 15 minutes basically about a couple like an hgtv couple uh who are a documentary is being made about them they live in a small new mexico town where they have moved to a smaller 
kind of town that is largely poor and they aren't using the word gentrification but they're buying lots of land there and supplementing the rent of all the people who they're making their rents higher they're just to look like good people right and they're trying to be good people but uh definitely the guy nathan fielder is definitely not the greatest he just seems like an asshat of a guy and emma stone seems fairly genuine with her intentions of helping community they're making this thing and it has this amazing interview where they're being interviewed on camera by this woman like a tv newswoman and she asks a couple uncomfortable questions and he starts getting defensive and then it's just a snowball to the point where it's basically one of the most uncomfortable things you've ever you're just sitting there going oh my god stop just stop talking and he keeps going digging himself a grave anyway it's that kind of humor it has um basically halfway through this i was not expecting the the kind of tone to get this dark it becomes like happiness the humor is that dark and wow. there's something that is so funny and unexpected uh penis related and very graphic that i was like whoa okay hello hello television and it pays off in one of the funniest things and most kind of like uh depressingly mocking of men uh, you'll ever see on tv very funny but where it could become horror and i can't tell yet if that's going to be its intention is uh basically the guy is uh, they're making the documentary on him and they're like ah oh, we could shoot a, a quick scene you know where you look like a nice guy see that little uh girl who's like asking trying to sell the chocolate bars for like you know or i think it's sprite cans she's trying to sell for her dad um you know go up to her and give her money and buy one and that will look good for the camera and he goes to her and he looks in his wallet and it's like a larry it's like curb your enthusiasm he looks at his wallet as he's walking towards her and he only has 100 and he's like oh shit and he looks really concerned and he doesn't know what to do like does he and, and the film you know the documentary is filming him so he like goes up to the girl and goes here little girl you know here's the money for your thing and she looks all happy and and he like smiles and says goodbye to her and walks off and then the camera stops and then he runs back to her and goes no you have to give that back to me i'll give you more money later and he takes it back from her and she says i curse you now that's that's the lead up to the movie and it's just like all very funny and then at that point he start like his wife is like you need to un you need to ask her to undo it you have to go do something and he's looking for her and it's it, it's very absurd it's very dark and very funny but i'm curious i can't tell whether because of the title is it going to go horror like she they're actually cursed or is it going to go people who think that somebody's cursing them and screw up all the ways to kind of undo it either way it's probably the one of the best things i've seen on tv personally like where it's just so my my weird kind of uh sweet spot but i don't know it's only episode one so far so um if it's not horror i won't talk about it ever again on the show but I do want to tell people it's very funny and weird. Well, um, there are only two reviews of it on Amazon and they both gave it five stars. So he, he's really popular right now, but also the Safety brothers are huge right now. And Emma Stone's mm -hmm. huge. So it's like all these people coming together to, to make something this weird, you know, it's got to be worth checking out. Yeah. Uh, and then the other show uh, I told you about late last night, I, didn't know about it but it looked really cool it's a murder at the end of the world and i do think you should watch it. it's definitely probably maybe more in the tone my tone of that kind of like, it's kind of almost bordering on almost going too far into the art house uh it's uh by the two people who made that show the oe mm -hmm. um and they made that movie that we both quite like called sound of my voice that indie film with Britt marling so, i love yeah that that's one. a good one it's uh his name is zal batman galley and oh. Brit Brit's Marlin, in this as well okay yeah they're the two who are making the show but Brit's also in it and so it's basically about this Gen Z uh they call her an amateur sleuth her name's Darby Hart she's written speaking of true crime she's written a true crime book about this uh serial killer case that her and her boyfriend at the time who met online when they're super young like teenagers they cracked this case about a, about a woman whose body was found that no one ever cared about and so it cuts between the past when they're doing this and 
this um, modern kind of an Elon Musk figure with in terms of tech and being way ahead of the curve, that kind of not so much the bad personality things uh, with this character played by Clive Owen, which is why I wanted to watch it because I love Clive Owen. Mm -hmm. And basically she gets an invite uh, to go to this um, basically a conference where he's going to get a handful of the greatest minds, tech minds to basically figure out what is the future of this planet of this region and they're going to do it in the middle of like uh nova scotia or something somewhere in the middle of canada you know so oh, no i think it's norway surrounded by snow and ice uh but a millionaire billionaire's retreat and it's full of mystery no one knows who he really is and all these geniuses people get up there. so it's very much up your alley in terms of like a bunch of smart people trapped in a place and then i'm not going to say who it is but somebody is murdered that night and now they're going to have to, they're all stuck there and they're going to have to figure out why. And it's got a lot of emotion. It is a, I would call it the non-funny version of Knives Out or Poker Face. It's not got humor at all. It's a very straight um, art version. But the character is really interesting because she's this, you know, her dad was a um, uh, person who uh, bear, did, does the autopsies, basically. And so he was more, not mortician, a medical examiner. But but he in a small town, so it's kind of a one stop shop. So yeah. it maybe is like a mortuary. Um, and so she grew up around that stuff. That's why she can. She has a lot of tells. So it's kind of like poker face, but she hasn't. She's not the funny, clever kind of thing. It's much more about the intellect. But so far, there's two episodes put up. I think it's a seven episode show. Um, I, I found it very aesthetically interesting and pulled me in last night. I I, I was getting into it for sure. So and definitely up your alley because you like to a bunch of fancy people to be in a room and have to figure out what the hell's going on i love those movies i'll take it in tv show as well i'll take it in tv show mm-hmm. form i literally told my students that they need to go write some of those because i'm waiting for yeah more no, i hear those. you so work on that um okay so i just added a bunch of stuff to my list where can we see a murder at the end of the world because it's not on amazon so where that is an, that at it's an fx show which means i watched it on hulu Got it. So, so okay. it will be on Hulu. The first two episodes are out now. And then one every week after that, I think. Great. Um, Oak Island has restarted. So that was my other big. Remember I watched Chris yeah, Oak Island? Yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. It restarted oh, yeah. last week. So I've been watching that. And I'm excited because there's a new episode tonight. It's not hey. horror, but it's, you know, we all That's have okay. our, our little pleasures that we yeah. watch. Um, what is your reality show of choice? Mm. I've really slowed down. I used to lo- like when I was, you know, 20 or whatever. I loved there was a um, an art one. It was the best show. It's still my favorite show outside of like Project Greenlight or whatever. If you say Project Greenlight, that does not count. I know. I well, obviously I love that one. the reality show that you know is like partially faked. I mean, there, well, there used to be one where you had to, it's kind of like the, what's the cooking show that's famous? You know, the- Hell's chef. Kitchen? Top, well, it's, not, it's like Top Chef, but it was artists. Mm-hmm. And it only lasted one season, which was such a bummer. By the same network, Bravo. It was so cool. It was like all these artists, all different types of art too. Like some really weird stuff. And the challenges were bonkers. They had to come up with these things and at the end of the year i was so bummed when it never got renewed because it was actually really fun but it's not that sleazy i know what you're saying like the guilty pleasure sleazy show yeah. I, I i don't know if i have one at the moment not because i'm over oh, it. So i think i just don't have time yeah oh. i have to watch uh like a, a russian film um so i will be uh, i will only watch <laughs> european you know, i will only watch stalker and nothing else so yeah, exactly yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to dive into my book and my graphic novel. And this book, I started this book when we were in Knoxville. I think I started this uh-huh. on the plane on the way back. So it took me a while to get through it. 
um, just because life happened in the meantime. And this is What Kind of Mother by Clay McLeod Chapman, hmm. who we had on the show eight months ago, maybe a year ago for his other book, Ghost Eaters. Mm-hmm. And I loved this one because it's set in Virginia on the Chesapeake in an area near a couple hours away where I'm from. And we used to drive down um, to get oysters in this area all the time. So I knew exactly where this was set. But it's just a really cool, compelling horror story that I'm genuinely surprised if that no one has announced that they're making a film version of this yet. The book's been out for a couple of months now. Um, really Lovecraftian as well. And it is about a um, woman who had big dreams, went off, tried to, you know, live in other cities and ultimately didn't make it. And so she is back home and she is doing what her mom and her grandma used to do, which is working as a palm reader in the town, in this tiny little town on the Chesapeake. Although she firmly admits that she has no psychic powers whatsoever, she just thinks that she's a really good judge of character that somebody can just walk in and she can immediately kind of, you know, basically like house MD them and break down. Well, you've got this type of shoes and you've got this scar on your hand and your hair looks like this. And therefore this is what's happening in your life or kind of prejudging what people want advice on. And so she just always thinks that she's this really good judge of character until one of her friends from high school, whose son disappeared at eight months old, his son disappeared off the face of the earth. Um, and his wife ended up killing him, killing herself afterwards. Like nobody really knew what happened. His son just vanished. And he firmly believes that his son is still alive somewhere. This happened years ago, like seven years ago. And he is still very much living in the trauma of this missing eight month old baby from years ago. And he comes to her and says, I want you to help me find my son. And for the first time ever, she starts getting psychic flashes of things happening and places and stuff like that. It evolves from there with a lot of crabs and eels and Lovecraftian goodness. So this this was a rich book. I had a really good time reading this one. It took me a while to get through it, but it was well worth the, the journey along the way. And it gets really weird and crabby. Um, so anytime you're bringing crabs in, I'm totally in. So thank you for this one, Clay. This was a trip. And then this last one is a graphic novel that I picked up when I was in... Portland um, at the uh, Lovecraft Film Festival there. I had bought it from the bookstore. They have this amazing bookstore. God damn, I wish I could remember the name. Somebody's going to yell. Somebody is literally having an aneurysm right now because they're freaking out that I can't remember. Pals? No, they have this. It, what is it? It's not. I was just saying, I thought they had a Pals as well. But it might like, be Pals. Like it was this massive. No, this was a Portland-based bookstore and it was freaking huge and it was now i have to google portland everybody loves it when i google stuff on i'll air. do it and you thank you, you. Keep talking. amazing portland bookstore is in a really cool part of town um where we had had coffee with some friends it was really fun and then we stumbled on this absolutely epic bookstore there that had a beautiful beautiful graphic novel i think it section. is pals because is it, pals? it says shop pals books serving portland since 1971 huh. so. I, i'm not sure if that is it but that's okay. Um, it might be. Actually, I think it is. And pals. it's Hawthorne, which is the Hawthorne, nice fancy area. So it's probably yeah, that. Yeah. We were I've walking been there, around yeah, Hawthorne. Sure, yeah. It is pals. Um, so yeah, beautiful bookstore, amazing graphic novel section. They had a lovely horror section as well, which they had separated and they had several aisles of horror books, which was great. Um, but I picked up, and this was a blind buy, a graphic novel there called Grammarie Land. 
um, written by a gentleman named A. Rassen. And this was a Webtoons. And I wasn't, I'm familiar with Webtoons. There's a lot of comics that I kind of keep up with on Webtoons, but I had not heard of this one, nor had I been keeping up with it. And this is a, the collection of the Webtoons, but then I think it does a little bit something different with it because it kind of creates a full story. Um, and a lot of the Webtoons kind of never make it off the web, which is totally fine. That's how they they work. But being able to kind of read it in book form was really fun. I loved this story. It is about six friends from school who have kind of separated. They seem like they've drifted apart a bit. Um, one of them is an influencer now. We're going back to that influencer horror thing. One of them is a big time influencer horror now. And she has been invited along with a group of her friends. And these are the friends that she has selected to visit a brand new horror theme park called Gremory Land. And they get there and the whole icon is this little boy whose name is Gremory. And that supposedly he built this entire horror theme park based on the horrors of his own life. So based on, you know, his parents, based on other things that happening to him. And they all go through one part of this. They have kind of their intro into the theme park and then they all get separated and the theme park, it's a horror theme park. It's really fun. So it basically becomes like eight people loose in a theme park, in a horror theme park. But the theme park itself is geared to, to kill them. And so it's got all of these different kind of escape room-esque devices at play where they have to do certain things in order to keep moving to the next level, in order to find exits and things like that. And never once do you really see who's behind it, but whoever it is knows a great deal about these kids and why they are there and their background. And it feels kind of escape room in that capacity. But you know, I love some escape room movies too. So I was all in on this. You had me at horror theme park and I stuck around for escape room, definitely. So this was a beautifully fun graphic novel read. And I've now been catching up with the webtoon online as well. And I hope they do another printed volume because it was just a joy to sit and read on its own. So that is awesome. Gremory Land by A. Rafson. All righty. Excellent. So shall we uh, go to some Christmas time fun? I think it's Yule time. Let's do it. Tonight's Colors of the Dark is brought to you by the new scripted horror podcast, Can't Relax. On the weekend before their ACTs, Anya and her friends download a new mobile relaxation app to take the edge off, unaware that it secretly plants murderous subliminal messages into the brains of its listeners. When people start dying, Anya must figure out who planted the corrupt malware on their phones and how to stop it before she becomes the killer herself. Starring Olivia Trujillo from All Mankind, Andre Robinson from Nico and Nico and Sword of Light, and Patrick Labrato from Heathers. And introducing Penny Epstein. We finished the series and it's a lot of fun and we've already started listening to other horror podcasts from the same company, Glisten Plus. Um, a really good one that's coming out is called The Dispossessed about an unhoused girl who is haunted by a homeless entity. So be sure to check out Can't Relax podcast on Glisten Plus now. Diving into the holiday spirit, we uh, are going to be covering the uh, wonderfully fun It's a Wonderful Knife, and we are lucky to be joined by the director, who has been on an old iteration of our show, Mr. Tyler McIntyre. Welcome to the show. 
Thanks so much for having me back. So good to have you on again. Thank you so much for joining us. This film was an absolute blast. Oh, hey, uh, hey I'm just uh, happy it's getting out there and people are seeing it, getting in the holiday spirit. You know, that's all I can ask for. So how did the project first come about? Did it exist as a script and then it made its way to you? Like, how did did you originally come upon it? Yeah, I mean, like I uh, I got to know uh, Michael Kennedy a little bit, uh, kind of because, um, you know, I, my previous film was a movie called Tragedy Girls that came out a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, sort of a bubbly or slasher movie. And then when Freaky came out uh, in 2020, uh, a lot of people were were. Uh, you know, reaching out to me being like, you should really meet Michael Kennedy. You know, you guys mm-hmm. have some stuff in common. You're after similar things. And, uh, you know, you have some, you have a penchant for table saw kills, you know, stuff like that. And so uh, we started, uh, you know, uh, talking and kind of dug each other. And then uh, when he had written, it's a wonderful knife. Um, I also knew the uh, Adam and Greg over at Divide and Conquer and Seth mm-hmm. Kaplan, who who uh, went to AFI around the time I did. Um, and so we kind of, I kind of knew a lot of the people involved and they sent me the script and I really just, you know, kind of fell in love with it. I mean, it's, I like think I think the high concept of it's really um, interesting. It has kind of a fun twist on a story that a lot of people are familiar with. But at the same time, like uh, a lot of the stuff that I tend to direct is things that I've written, and it's um, typically they're pretty cynical or are kind of a little bit more on the on the ironic side in a lot of ways. And whereas what I liked about this was it really um, kind of meant it. You know, like and it was, it was sincere in a way that a lot of the stuff that I write isn't. And it was kind of a fun opportunity to sort of play things a little straight and try and make essentially an uplifting slasher movie, which was kind of a challenge in of itself. It's interesting because you were coming to kind of coming full circle because the meta slasher, you know, there's a couple, there's obviously been examples through history, but I feel it has really kind of taken off from around the time of Tragedy Girls. Like there's quite a few films, whether it's Mm -hmm. Final Girls, the Blumhouse uh, sagas uh, and Freaky. And they, you know, they're all all dealing for the most part with something high concept. Like they, most of them seem to, whether it's body swapping, time travel, as we had recently. And now this one, which is, you know, It's a Wonderful Life, which is a really, you know, it's a super fun that you're also able to work that into the title itself, which is, it's one thing to work in the concept, but to also nail the title is fun. But how, you know, how, how, how aware of you are of like the different things that have gone before or happening at the same time. So as you can kind of still make this the way you want to do it and not just repeat yourself. Yeah, I I mean... I consider this and and Tragedy Girls pretty different. Like when we were developing Tragedy Girls, uh, slashers were really like not in fashion. You know, like mm-hmm. um, like you know when I was in high school, like you know obviously like Scream hit and and we had that kind of like '90s kind of horror cycle where slashers came back for a minute and then they got a little too goofy. You know, like like you had the kind of scary movies and things yep. like that. And then, um, and then somebody, you know, James Wan kind of rolled up and 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 you know made Saw and everyone was like, no jokes, no humor in horror at all. There's no fun, you know, kind of thing. And it was just a very, very, I mean, not that Saw's not fun in its own way, but like, uh, you know, there was sort of an aversion to horror comedy. And so when I actually moved to LA, uh, every time I like wrote a, you know, I, I like horror comedy, I write a lot of horror comedy and people were like, do you know, there's some like jokes in this horror script? Like what the, what the hell's wrong with you? And, um, and because we were deep in like conjuring, you know, possession territory at that, mm-hmm. at that time. And uh, and so when we developed that movie, it was it was very different because people weren't really in the uh, they, you know there weren't any slashers coming out really other than maybe like the Hatchet series kind of in the middle of that yeah but but yeah like uh, you know but even that movie is kind of after something a little different and so so like whereas this time around like we're already you know th- like uh, Tragic Girls were made before 
like Happy Death Day before before you know um, the Halloweens. And now we're three Hall- Halloween uh, reboot movies la- later, and, and and people are much more familiar with the concept of making a slasher movie, and so they're much more uh, like those have been hitting you know with relative regularity at the box office even through the pandemic, and um, you know so so there was a little bit more of a of a support for it i found yeah. and so you know we're definitely familiar with with you know the things that kind of came before and i know michael in particular has a lot of respect for um you know the the kind of lessons that that um we learned from like all the kevin williamson type of slashers and and um and uh yeah so you can see that dna very much in in the in the story itself yeah so talk a little bit um in it's a wonderful knife we have this kind of quaint little town and that honestly is kind of our big entrance into the film is just this charming town and all of the residents there and where did you shoot and how did you kind of craft out that town because we see so much of it like it feels huge because i'm like we never get to see outside and like sidewalks and stuff in horror movies because that that's usually a massive thing yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like we we were uh, ambitious, I think, for the scope of production we were doing, and and but we knew we wanted to feel the town in a, in a way. We wanted to be charming. We wanted to get a sense of it, and um, you know, so we we shot in Vancouver, British Columbia, mm-hmm. which is um, uh, you know, uh, like I'm somewhat familiar with because I I'm from Canada originally, and we were um, you know, they have a you know th- this kind of sort of movie of the week kind of system there where, where they make a lot of the Hallmark films and things like that. A lot of those are holiday movies. And uh, it was, um, you know, but they kind of have like certain locations that have been sort of burnt by that because they're almost in too many movies. And so, so like location managers won't show you those uh, if you're making a, one of those holiday movies. And, and and we kind of rolled up being like, no, no, well, that's what we want. We want yeah. the movie, the, the thing that, that was shot too much. We want to play it a different way. So like- You we're want gonna, the gazebo. Yeah, we want the nightmare version of this gazebo town square, whatever, yeah. you know, like- and um, and so it was actually kind of fun because we actually had, you know, a lot of people who on the crew who who had done a tour of duty in that world. And so and we were, you know, leaning into like essentially the first 30 minutes of our movie is very much a satire of that type of Christmas movie, you know, because initially we were, we were talking about like, well, you know, what is this sort of default kind of fun, happy world that she's from or Winnie, our main character? And, um, you know, and so we were looking at like Home Alone and those sorts of classics and like, you know, Gremlins and things like that. Uh, for like that warm kind of you know uh christmas family all american vibe but we were like that's kind of dated like that's the thing that that's what it was when i was a kid you know um and whereas now like the main thrust of like sincere you know uplifting christmas movies is are those movies of the week you know the, the stuff that people put on is you know kind of holiday wallpaper and so we wanted to kind of do an exaggerated version of that and and in a lot of ways this is a movie sort of about you know a young woman who's a character in a hallmark film who who, who uh, all of a sudden you know the, the the mustache twisting villain his like real estate scheme gets burned and he just starts killing everybody and then and it kind of puts you inside the narrative in a, in a way that i think um opens up some you know possibilities for satire and we were kind of sharpening that sort of stuff once i came on yeah. i think you still got to keep a cynical character which is good the villain even though it's played for last you still get to keep a little he has a cynical core to him which was fun and justin long's to me the almost the best actor working in the genre right now because he's just always bringing something fun in this it's much bigger and much a much crazier swing which is fun to see so i didn't even recognize him as justin long at first <laughs> like it got to because like i baller move not to drop the credit sequence until like the 15 minute mark i loved that it was that like 
extended cold open. And I was at the credit sequence when I was suddenly like, who is this guy? Like we'd watched him through this entire opening scene. And then I had to hop on IMDb and I was like, oh my God, it's Justin Long. It's like the hair. And the teeth. Um, I think there's so, fake teeth in there. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. far, not him. Where I was, I was recognizing eyes and mannerisms, but not even making the connection yet. Yeah, he definitely like. Well, he came in kind of hard with like, um, like a very specific type of type of look that he wanted to go for because he really kind of connected to the kind of artifice of the of the character, you know. Like, and so we started kind of unpacking that a little bit, and really were throwing around a lot of you know references of of these sort of you know, kind of out of fashion, kind of capitalist kind of dudes that were kind of, you know, like the Michael Douglas from Wall Street kind of mold, you know, and, and so, you know, with that comes things like the spray tan and the perfect teeth and that are like impossibly white and, and, um, you know, and he wanted to go with like blue eyes and the kind of lighter hair and stuff. And, and, you know, and, and I think for good reason, because, you know, he's been, he's a very, you know, like, um, yeah, you know, kind of charming out of the box sort of guy who has this, like boy next door kind of assumption about him that he's been playing for a long time. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that, uh, you know, he, he wants to, you know, he's looking for opportunities to expand. And in in a movie like this, because Christmas movies have kind of big villains typically you can take some big swings. And I was sort of like, let's do it. And, 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 you know, I mean, the, uh, the studio was, was a bit apprehensive at first because they were like, wait a second, you know, like fake teeth, like he's going to wear a fake nose. Like we're gonna be able to tell him like what's going on. And and, I, and can you talk him out of it? And I was like, I don't think we want to. Like, you know, we we bought the ticket. We should take this ride. Like, we we want to be him to be as excited about swinging for this as we can, and then I'll be the arbiter of kind of like what kind of exi- can exist in this world, and then yeah. sort of you know because he's just a fountain of ideas, and you want to be able to shape that. And he was open to it. You know, like he he didn't want to be too big, and and I think that was kind of um, you know as a result we kind of ended up with this nice kind of anchoring. Uh, or, or, or perform, I mean, not anchoring in reality, but like anchoring in terms of like we could build other things around it. Yeah. Um. So talk a little bit about the angel and kind of creating it. Was that something that was in the original script, the idea of the angel as the slasher? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um. You know, like it, there was a version of uh, or, or like well, an explanation of kind of like he's sort of wearing all white and um and that he was an angel. And I thought that was an interesting thing because, you know, we've seen too many Santa Clauses and, you know, I mean, there's even a couple of snowman Christmas or, you know, horror slashers in my in my day. Yep. <laughs> I really, uh, you know, I definitely, um, you know, was kind of into the idea of trying to figure out, well, what the hell does that mean? Because um, it has some challenges to it. Like, you know, um, the reason that you don't see a lot of all white killers is because they usually are hiding in the shadows and stuff and and uh and and it's completely impractical um and so we were trying to kind of figure out what exactly that meant and once we started looking around at some references we found these kind of creepy like vintage like tree toppers that had these very like porcelain kind of like almost featureless faces and we were like well let's just do like a blown up version of that and so that was kind of our guiding sort of star for this and or angel i guess in this case um and uh and so we started uh you know digging in on that and worked with uh, tiana gordon our, our production designer and matea our costume designer and and they brought forward a lot of ideas and we didn't want to get like too like you know um comic book with it like you know it, it has some tendency to look at like moon knight or spider gwen mm-hmm. or one of those characters and and, and so we were what well, we kind of tested a lot of things on on camera and um, and then eventually kind of settled into the look and started, you know, we also, he needed to be kind of lean and quick because, you know, of the sort of stunts involved and, and not like a bigger sort of hulking character. And, um, and then once we found, uh, that we kind of need to split the difference between the characters that were like wearing the, wearing the suit and, and that, that kind of dictated some of our decisions, but, um, you know, we, we backed our way into it and people are, um, have been responding well to it, I think, because they're yeah. always sort of hungry for a new looking slasher. 
No, that's the hard part right now is I like you read scripts and it just says mask slasher because it's so hard to kind of craft out an original one at this point. So that to see a yeah. new slasher in general is great. But you can still do it. You know, I mean, I'm I'm excited. There was a trailer for Founders Day on, on the front of our movie that, that I and I love their costume, you know, like they uh, those guys really found a really fun one that you wouldn't think of. And, um, you know, you can still do it. You just have to kind of stop and stop and think. And, 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 I, and I think a lot of times, um, you know, people don't think of like their whole, their script is like the whole package and, and, and you can kind of glaze over some of those things. Um, and you can to a certain extent, but I think you, you know, it, it really pays off if you take a, take the moment and figure it out. Yeah. I just watched one this week on Netflix that I'm actually going to talk about at the top of the show. Hey guys, we're taping this in reverse um, called the conference. And I was impressed because they had this really cool mask on it and yeah, you can do it. So very cool. Even, even the black phone <laughs> mask was really super. Oh yeah. I thought that was yeah. a cool design and unique. I wanted to, you know, my biggest problem with the meta, some of the meta slashers are kind of that we have had lately is that they are often very clever, often really like the characters, and the slasher stuff um, tends to be really weak on a couple of them. There's one in particular mm. that, I, that actually really like the movie. I won't say which one it is right now, but I think it's very weak in terms of the slasher. And both of your films, I think that's a high point. I think the slash and this one too, I wasn't expecting that because you meet the characters and they're all, it's nice and fun. And so I feel like I'm watching a certain type of film. But once the actual horror and the kind of thrills and the fight scenes orchestration start, I think they're really impressive. And and it's actually the thing that got me really into this movie because I wasn't expecting that for whatever reason uh, to match. And so I'm just curious how you uh, approached the actual horror slasher scenes. I think sometimes it might be because someone's making it who isn't even into these movies. That might be a problem sometimes because um, maybe they're more into comedy or something like that. But uh, do you, how do you approach it? And what are kind of your, because uh, it goes pretty hard for the kind of movie it is. Yeah, these yeah. kills were impressive. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I always, you know, um, I mean, I think as a horror fan, I always want them to be a bit bigger. Um, and then I think like, uh, you know, when I was younger, I made a lot of my horror short films were like a little too brutal, you know, like they mm -hmm. kind of like turned people off, you know, in a way that that I knew when I went when I made a feature that I didn't want to really do. And I almost kind of overshot it a little bit on on, on my first feature patchwork where where like a lot of the, you know, the horror, um, you know, uh, was maybe a bit too dark for the type of tone overall you know like mm. and and it you know it, it but it did you know that movie did well for me on its but it's you know it's a much smaller scale so you can kind of get away with with sort of taking bigger swings um whereas uh you know uh i think i like since i like horror comedies um and i make a lot of horror comedies and that's what it's my favorite genre i find that um the movies are, are are kind of what you would call gateway horror. You know, like you could sit down with somebody who's a non-horror fan as a horror fan and, and this would be a good compromise of something you can watch together. And um, and I think that's the same for Tragic Girls. I think it's the same for this. And um, uh, so it's a wonderful knife um, when we were kind of going into it. Like there were some sequences that were sort of fleshed out um, in terms of the type of kills that were there, uh, like the candy cane kill and stuff like that. If you've been watching the movie, that's a like, great one. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's on theme. Like, you know, it's, it's a kind mm -hmm. of self-contained thing. You can put it anywhere, you know, whereas there were some that are some other ones that were a little bit more based on the, on the location. And so we had like, like I just, um, originally there was this whole sequence where um, there was a number of people who got killed on like a frozen lake. And and then we we ended up our schedule got shifted so that we could there was no actual frozen lake and then we we have there's no good way to build a frozen lake, and so um so we you know and there's supposed to be people falling through the ice and stuff you know just a whole thing that that wouldn't have made sense to do it at the, at the or it wouldn't have been possible to do it on the schedule we had 
And so um, I kind of designed a whole different sequence, which was this more um, like a winter maze kind of sequence mm -hmm. um, that was around like, like this hedge maze. And we were going to kind of make it sort of snowy. And then I had designed a whole thing around that. And then we couldn't, um, uh, it was sort of predicated on using uh, this sort of drone technology um, uh, uh, like over the maze. And then there was some sort of like local bylaw where you couldn't fly drones over that park. Like, and, and we, and there was no way to like get around it. So, so between that and then like the just general cost of shooting in that place and the logistics, like it didn't make sense because we couldn't do the things we wanted to do. So we had to kind of rethink it and, and ended up with, with that um, sort of boardwalk sequence. But again, it's like, that's like a third iteration. And then when we yeah. plan to shoot the boardwalk sequence, um, we realized that the days we're shooting it on two of the two or three days are raining. So then you have to even rethink even more of it, you know, and, and it's, um, so you're constantly kind of, um, re revamping things and, 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 um, you know, as any filmmaker knows, like, as you know, you lose time and you lose money and like the walls kind of cave in around you, you kind of have to protect the sequences. And so for me, it's always like fun is number one, scary is number two. And, and then, you know, like everything else kind of comes after that. And so I have a fun, a lot of fun designing sequences, but like, it's not all on the page. A lot of that is very much, um, you know, there's kind of jumping off points in, in, and even in the best slasher scripts and, and they're all kind of written with these hypothetical um, other elements involved in, and you have to kind of make it your own and, and kind of admit what you have. And some of it's just listening to the locations. Yeah, definitely. Um, can you talk a little bit about kind of your gore gags? Because you definitely had a lot of them um, and they were really intense. Like, were you working with your special effects people to kind of craft out what could be done? How much was practical and how much was digital? Um, yeah, we did it. We did mostly practical where we could. Um, you know, a lot of it was was sort of stunt work around uh, around um, practical gags that were uh, that ended up with some sort of digital cleanup, like which as as a lot of things do, because sometimes you can't you can like a gag will work 75, 80 percent and you can sort of clean things up and it's fine. Um, uh, you know, so we tried to kind of um, be honest with ourselves, like I'm about you know, building things around the time we had. But for me, it's always the, the, the build up to the kill rather than the kill itself a lot of the time. Yeah. And so we, we um, you know, I I think I would have liked to go, you know, a little bit further, but like, again, it's it's like, you know, if I could get an extra day to shoot in every major location, I think everyone probably always thinks that when they're making a movie. <laughs> but, um, but you know, um, uh, you know, you, I think that could have taken it to to the next level, but like, I think we did well for what we what we had. And and I we worked with Kyle Moore, who's our special effects um, um uh, kind of head in in Vancouver and he figured out a lot of like the um, kind of practical gags and 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 then we sort of fig figured out like where we were going to cut and I did a very you know a small amount of storyboarding um, uh, kind of around that stuff um, but but typically speaking I, I would say it's probably 80 percent practical and, and then there's 20 percent kind of cleanup and and whatnot but a lot of it's um you know performance based like you know you yeah. like like somebody screaming and flailing while they're getting stabbed you know a lot of times sells things more than like the like getting the right scream in there you know, can, can, can save a gig a lot more than, than the actual practical blood that you're shooting. Um, and so it's, it's interesting. You have to kind of be cognizant of that stuff. And like, I think the scariest sequence in the movie is one that's, that's um, in the theater and it's just like mostly flashing lights mm -hmm. and things like that. And it's not necessarily about, um, about the blood, you know? Ah. Now, um, oh. oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask if you or Michael uh, pulled out any Christmas horror or slasher films to play to the crew or for or cinematographers or to set the tone of the kind of seasonal slasher. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I mean, we definitely talked about a lot of that stuff. Um, yeah. And and then we uh, like I, I definitely watched a number of films with our um, our cinematographer, Nick. Um, you know, and, and a lot of non-slasher films like like, um, you know, Michael and I talked a lot about like Black Christmas and things like mm -hmm. that. And I definitely looked at like, um, you know, uh, things like, um, 
you know, like, like Better Watch Out, I think is really great. Um, and, and that's like a, you know, a good Christmas horror film for the last couple of years. If, if no one's, uh, if everyone's looking for something to check out this holiday season, it's super cheery. And, um, and uh, you know, like, but my kind of stuff that I always loved when I was a kid, things like, like the Richard Donner Scrooged and, and stuff like that. Like, oh, yeah. like those, were, those were kind of where I pulled a lot of my like lookbook references and things like that. Yeah. And then, you know, the, and it was, um, you know, trying to find this kind of, um, palette like and and the palette of the movie is is these kind of nightmare this nightmare world in this traditional movie our traditional um kind of world and so the cheery kind of happy world that our character starts in has all those very traditional christmas colors and those traditional christmas lights and, and so it's a lot of golds and reds and a lot of very warm colors and then you have this nightmare version where <clears throat> things are a lot cooler a lot um you know whites and blues and and you have these sort of corporate christmas lights the kind of like you know the led like daylight balanced ones that are that you know make me want to shoot myself and um and the, the kind of the battle between like warm and cool was a lot of what we sort of talked about and um kind of sewed into this and and it and it sort of informed a lot of the decisions like um you know we have like you know like red solo cups and red varsity jackets in the in the in the good world and then like blue solo cups and blue varsity jackets in the in the other world and, and just trying to kind of find um different versions of different wardrobe that were warm and cool and, and try and sap as much red as we could other than the blood out of the nightmare world and things oh, like nice. that trying to you know like like sew it into the story decisions and the design decisions as much as we could um, and, and a lot of that came from like references and, and, but I, I found that I tend to pull references from movies and then, sh and then discuss them in more of a lookbook kind of format, or, or I do have references for individual departments rather than sitting down and watching films with people, um, which, which I do more with, I would say cinematographers. And then I, um, sometimes will send, send the actors some, some kind of recommendations of things to check out. But, um, but yeah, I would say, um, mostly with, with Michael and, and Nick, my cinematographer, we kind of watched a few things. Yeah, outside you have to screen. go back into It's oh. a Wonderful Life. Oh, sorry. I was just going to ask about <laughs> It's a Wonderful Life, though. Did you guys dig deep into that film structurally to find if there are more like little playful connections? I spotted a couple that I thought. Yeah, there's a few, Um, uh, you know, like there's a couple that got cut out, Um, you know, like mm -hmm. that were maybe a bit more direct. Um, but, uh, you know, since it's like not a really a beat for beat remake yeah. of it, nor, nor is it a spoof of it. Um, Like I was looking at a lot of movies like stuff like you know, like, like that Jim Belushi, like Mr. Destiny, you know, like, oh, like movies yeah. like that, you know, where, where like, it's sort of, you're, you're getting sort of two versions of a, of, of a reality. And, and that in itself is like, you know, kind of a Christmas Carol sort of trope. And so I was trying to pull more of those sorts of references and, 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 you know, they actually watched the 1935 uh, Scrooge, uh, you know, and, and things like that in the film. And, um, and there's a couple things that are in there, like, um, like when uh, Bernie and Winnie see each other at the party, it's a lot like when George sees his future wife at the, at the, you know, um, uh, Christmas party and, and things like that, kind of that long lens sort of across the room kind of stuff. And, um, and so like a few little quotes like that, but to be honest, like, um, we didn't get too preoccupied with it, like, uh, like, uh, you know, and, and I was a little bit worried, because I think people like it obviously draws such a strong comparison to that movie by by you know using the pun on the title but like yeah. i don't think you need to have seen it's a wonderful life to to get this movie or no. even enjoy this movie no no, no not, not by any all, stretch yeah. oh my gosh so what is next can you talk about anything coming up after this at this point i know we're all coming off strike and none of us everything's on pause so um still but yeah <laughs> anything that you could talk about uh, yeah I'm, I'm i'm working on a like more i'm writing a more of a kids horror film uh for um uh paramount uh, right now that i'm hoping That's... it'll be the next thing i shoot so um you know um and then always developing stuff and i've got a couple things in the in the pipeline that i that I'm uh, been pushing along for for a couple of years, and you know, um, but uh, I'm I'm glad with you know with this uh, uh, coming out and uh, and uh, you know um, 
like I ended up uh, getting a like a story by credit on um, on Five Nights at Freddy's and stuff like that. So it's been... that. that's awesome. oh, I didn't put so... that together. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. that's oh, incredible. Yeah. So what did you do on the script? Uh, well, we wrote, we wrote a number of drafts of it um, over the years, and uh, and uh, um, and so yeah, I, I mean, I'm glad that it, that it got uh, made, it got through the wickets, and, and uh, Emma did a great job on it. So it's, um, I'm glad that people have been connecting with it. We yeah. talked about it last week that, um, you know, because some adult, you know, some horror people will go to the horror film and complain about a movie like that. But like, you know, I watched a group of kids in my house all become Same. horror fans overnight from that one movie. They wanted to watch it again right after it ended. They talked about a lot. And these were kids who didn't want to watch horror prior to that movie. So, you know, I think it's going to work for another a whole nother generation, which is what more can I ask? Yeah, you were well, talking about writing a kid's horror right now for Paramount. That is something that and we've talked about this a lot on the show that we are strong missing right now is gateway horror um and that for a number of i'll even go as far as to say decades the studios have been kind of wary of it and we'd see one pop up occasionally like night books pops up on netflix and then they do nothing else with it it just stands alone and it is so sad because when i'm looking for things to show my you know seven and eleven year old I'm so limited. And so having this was suddenly like, oh my gosh. And we followed it up. We did Five Nights at Freddy's. And then the next night they were like, we want another. And we watched Megan. And then we watched Tremors. And now we're in and we're <laughs> watching Arachnophobia. And yeah, it's we need that level of gateway horror now. For sure. Yeah. I mean, and, and that was like, you know, a lot of what we kind of talked about uh, like early on in the development process. And, and I think that, you know, I, I'm just glad that, um, you know, you kind of have to respect that like that's how people have been engaging with it. Like, and it was, you know, like, um, something that was, you know, grounded in a lot of people just getting scared of the game, you know, and yeah. and uh, so, um, you know, it's great that it's been kind of connecting because um, I do think it's going to, you know, over time, like turn into that, you know, turn into like the gremlins, you know, like and and I think that's, uh, you know, and we're already kind of seeing. It. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Excellent. And so it's a wonderful knife being put out by RLJ and then heading to Shutter. Um, where can people see it soon and where can they see it eventually and when? Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's it's still in theaters right now. Um, uh, it came out on November 10th and then it'll uh, hit Shutter on December 1st and I believe AMC's uh, other streaming platform. So AMC Plus. Um, yeah, it'll be it'll be around and check it out when it's down. Do a life knife double feature, you know, however you want to consume it. But uh, yeah, definitely good for the horror fans to check out before the holidays. Heck yes. Thank you so much for joining us again. Fantastic to talk with you always. We'll bring you right back in for your Paramount Kids film, which I am now looking forward to. Thank you everyone for listening. Please check out our Patreon show, Deep Cuts, if you are looking for some really, really weird, hard to find stuff. That is where we stash it. And otherwise, we will be back in another two weeks with another fun show. And in a couple of weeks, we'll be doing our top 10 of the year, which is always a very wild, contentious episode. So we've got that coming up. Thanks so much for listening. The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. 